Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi, regular listeners, you may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Sarit Becker. I'm Itamar Srulovic. Together we run a couple of Middle Eastern restaurants in London. And we also do our fair share of food writing. And welcome to Series 6 of Honey & Co. It's a series of talks we host in our little deli Honey & Spice on Warren Street. We talk to chefs and cookbook writers and waiters and managers and people we admire from the world of food. This season we got to meet some incredible people, we've cooked their food, we've learned so much, we are so excited to share this with you, I hope you enjoy as much as we did. The Honey & Co. Gone International. Today we're in Philadelphia, which is amazing because we've had the privilege of doing this amazing book tour in America and part of it we've been meeting great people. One of these people that we sit down with today is Mike Solomonov. He is an American Jewish chef that spent quite a bit of his time in Israel, got really inspired by the food and ended up opening in Philadelphia the restaurant Zahav, then later Kfar. Uh, he's also got Dizengoff. He's got a couple of falafel places. Really, the guy is an industry of Philadelphia. His food is amazing. He is the nicest person we have met, so honest and down-to-earth, and we had a really in-depth conversation with him at his restaurant Zahav. It's kind of start from the beginning. It's a, you know, it's a while ago. How did you become a chef? I became a chef not because I wanted to like be a chef. I dropped out of uh, college in Vermont. I like just partied and snowboarded and sort of wasted my parents' hard-earned money on like three semesters of like smoking weed and <laughs> um, moved back to Israel. And my parents had just gotten like they'd gotten divorced the year before, so it was the first time. I moved back to Israel, and, and it was like my mom, my brother, and a Russian wolfhound named Fred. Oh. So I had a giant dog in this little apartment in Korsaba. And I had no, you know, I, like three semesters of studio art and very shitty Hebrew doesn't get you very far in the Israeli job market. Yeah. So I like needed something to do. And I just walked up and down Rehov Weitzman asking store owners if I could like help. And there was a bakery. Uh, called Mafia Takfar mm -hmm. and 
I, you know, I recognize like borekas, obviously, and I grew up. My grandmother was Bulgarian, so we like borekas were the were our love language, right? Yeah. Um, so I saw the borekas, I saw the roglach. I was like, hey, can I work? And they were like, sure. And I basically scrubbed uh, sheet trays for fourteen hours a day, and totally fell in love with it. And um, got a job then a few months later working at a place called the Coffee Tree. Which yeah. is famous, uh-huh. right? Everybody yeah, yeah. knows the coffee tree. Yeah, yeah, it's a Kosovo it's Institute. Yeah. It is, and and uh, it sort of like embodies, I think, the way that like a lot of Israelis eat, which is like all day, no real start or finish. Yeah. You know, on Thursday nights, I remember literally cooking like fettuccine Alfredo at like five thirty in the morning yeah. for a high school kid. I'm like, yeah. I don't even know. Yeah, yeah. It's a school night, but. So, um, but this was like big, our staple food, wasn't yeah. it? Like big buckets of kind big of Italian-looking pasta yeah. with cream and fucking dry porcini. Yeah. yeah. So, um, or or you would get the Alfredo sauce, the you know Rotef Alfredo on top of like a baked potato with the yeah. foil, mm-hmm. or the toasting, right? Toasting, yeah. yeah. And you put like uh, yellow cheese and a really and cheap yellow butter. cheese. Yeah. yeah, it's a government cheese, right? <laughs> Subsidized government cheese. It. And then you'd serve it with a little side salad with the balsamic dressing and, a, and like a, a little, cur- like a carafe of like Thousand Island dressing yeah. to dip it into. But I fell in love with it and I loved it. And I was so used to, um, I felt like I just took from people, you know, it was just a really, I grew up, yeah, just like, I don't know. I feel like there's this sort of like middle to upper middle class American um sort of Jewish community that I was a part of and nothing wrong with that but I felt like I didn't know what it was like to sacrifice I didn't know you know my mom was a school teacher and loved what she did and got paid nothing my dad you know grew up in Lud with like very little and then ended up um, being this jeweler in the US and then he owned like a subway sandwich like a small like a food franchise. you know yeah franchise and I just they gave me everything I needed and I really had nothing to show for it. Like I had no, none of that work ethic and there was something that I found that I loved and I loved the insanity of it, like mm-hmm. the crazy long hours. It was in, a, it was in the middle of a chamsim, which is, you know, it's like hot, a heat wave, but it's hot winds that blow from the desert. It's like 105 degrees Fahrenheit and the hood, the ventilation system in the restaurant broke and you know so it was like bananas and it was like two people cooking me and this guy Yossi and um, and like a Romanian dishwasher and we just it was exhilarating like I loved the intensity of it I learned Hebrew from reading tickets and from yeah. having to like you know try to like pick up servers that was like the only way that it was going to happen <laughs> was if I could do it in Hebrew and then also just like working very honestly for for like my wage was very which was ter- it was like 12 yeah. shekels an hour it sucked but it was amazing it was like I loved it and there was I think that I had grown up like if I grew up today I would have been diagnosed with ADD and probably given like tons of medicine we didn't do that then yeah. luckily and so and even though to a certain point I was an okay student but then I just kind of stopped being a good student and there was something about like moving, like the, all the things happening at the same time, all the pots and pans and the fire and people shouting and tickets, the sound of the machine, like going in and then chopping and 
like different languages, you know, because like bakeries, especially in Israel, it is every type of society, every kind of person works yeah. in a bakery, and everybody in Israel eats fucking pastries like four times a day. All yeah. the time. Yeah. You know? It's, it's just the common thing. But there is something about that massive adrenaline thing that happens in a kitchen where a lot of kind of what we call ourselves and other people like that work with us and kind of the misfits end up in that environment where there's like, everything's happening at once and you kind of can be as ADHD as you want because you jump from like chopping to serving a table to talking to someone to washing a dish and yeah. it works for a very kind of certain type of well if you think about it like we're always trying to cook in circles that's my 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 instruction to line cooks right fire the piece of fish turn around, garnish a plate, yeah. keep yeah. going. So like you need the ADD, I think, to be a very good cook, yeah. in my opinion. And especially as you guys know, when you're a restaurant owner, it's like, a, there's just a different level. It's next level. Because <laughs> yeah. you're like, I've got a podcast, we're gonna travel around the US, our <laughs> walk-in refrigerator went out, and now I'm on my hands and knees with a paring knife trying to like replace something, and I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Yeah. If you're not used to the, the highs and lows and how to deal with that, and how to input all this like information, it isn't really, you know, you. It isn't for you, and I don't. I think that it can be kind of a hindrance in a way. So also, if it's quiet, you kind of think, well, what am I doing? Like if everything works smoothly, you just think Something's I'm really boring. Yeah. You know, like yeah. you get you're so you're so used to working on this kind of high intensity level of everything going oh. wrong at one time, but also these huge highs of like a nice full restaurant and buzzing and everything happening, which right. all the hard work pays off for. So when you've got this buzz and you feel like you're not just the proprietor not just the chef but you're part of this team or this relationship between the team and the guest which is where hospitality kind of happens yeah. it's very difficult to do that and then to sit in like a manager meeting for example the next day and talk about like PL numbers yeah. which is what we normally do on Tuesdays my business partner Steve and I go to each one of the restaurants and we have these meetings and Steve is the opposite of me he is very calm very intelligent, very patient. And like, so we have like six meetings in a row basically. And after the first meeting, the first 15 minutes of the first meeting, I'm like, get me the fuck out of here, you know? <laughs> and I've sat here on this side, in this room that we're in, facing this beautiful manicured lawn out there in, the, in Society Hill, Philly. And I've envisioned or fantasized about taking one of these chairs and throwing it through the window because I cannot yeah. with the stillness, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's a lot to do, isn't it? Like, uh, would that pick up on this? I mean, that would be great, a great sound effect. If you right? threw it, yeah. yeah, if you <laughs> smash the window. Yeah. For me, you know, it took a long time to realize that actually I love this environment. It's very good for me. Yeah, because you did that, the same kind of course yeah. of just falling into a kitchen kind yeah. of thing. But I, I thought, you know, well, you know, I can do this. I get a paycheck. I enjoy it, kind of. But it's uh, <laughs> like most of the time. But it, it, it took me a long time to realize that actually this environment is very, very good and beneficial for me, for yeah. the way I am. But it is very hard if, once you train to go to kind of the real world of meetings and management and, you know, emails and stuff like that, which is actually really... Dull. Sorry, Louisa. <laughs> I think for some people it, it works really well, and some people would look at the way we live our lives and think you're crazy, like having to worry about all of this stuff. But I want to stay a bit with the with the yeah. history and think about, or if you could tell us a bit about what you think food played in your childhood. I mean, you said your grandmother was kind of cooking burakas and stuff like that. Is there other aspects or a very American kind of food? So I had this weird... I knew that we were different because my dad... Um, you know, spoke with like a funny accent yeah. and 
still to this day, it, still to this day, it will say close the lights. And I'm like, oh, but it's not a, <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, like you read like fucking War and Peace in English. Yeah. You can't just like say turn off the lights. My yeah. God. But there was always like a little, there was always like an aspect of, uh, you know, we grew up in Squirrel Hill, Pittsburgh, which is kind of like a shtetl, you know, mm -hmm. there's like a t huge Jewish community. So having an Israeli father wasn't, or being from Israel, wasn't like the weirdest thing, but it, I, I thought growing up that every American city had people still speaking Yiddish in the streets, that there were 10 synagogues, that on Shabbat there were certain streets that you wouldn't go down, you know, yeah. which is not the case, right? So it was, Squirrel Hill is like a little bit different than just like straight America, right? But um, we always had to clean on the table. We'd have like the, um, you know, the unseated rye. A stick of butter and then trina, you know, <laughs> and then we'd have schnitzel like two or three times a week or whatever. Or and there were always things that were a little bit different, but it, like I said, it was kind of an easier place to be a little bit different, you know. And my mom is a very, you know, she was an amazing cook. Um, my dad's actually a very good cook. I was the pickiest fucking eater ever, ever. Such a difficult. Really? Eater. Yeah, I know. The irony is. And which means that there's like hope for my kids too, but are yeah, they picky now? They, you know, it's funny they're picky, but they'll be like they're really into like Southeast Asian noodle soup. You have so, two boys, yeah? yeah, two boys. Do they have kind of? Are they quite full of energy as well, like you were? Or yeah. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. So I grew up like food wasn't food wasn't like my thing. My mom made very good brisket that I ate. We had schnitzel at lunch. She would make like milk pots or like stir fry, yeah. which we would eat or tolerate. And then when my grandmother would visit, like every other year or like bar mitzvah years or whatever, she would just pull up in the kitchen and make like fucking barricos for like, you know, yeah. centuries. For days. Yeah. Freeze um, them for you for the exactly. rest of it, yeah. <laughs> and then call from Israel, you know, $2 a minute to make sure that we weren't like cooking them in the microwave. That was <laughs> Toaster oven. Toaster oven is basically like yeah. the most important, you know, in, in yes, an old school immigrant Israeli kitchen, toaster oven is like a fucking combi or rush. Yeah. <laughs> it is, you can do anything yeah, yeah, yeah. in it. Anything. I once cooked chicken soup in it when we ran out of gas in Tel Aviv because yeah. you can do it in a toaster oven anything. anything. Yeah, exactly. So, um, <laughs> toaster oven, wooden spoon, that's it. Yeah, totally that was my relationship to food. I actually didn't start loving food until I started cooking food. Mm. And then I started to eat everything. And then I was like, wow, this is incredible. And then I certainly wasn't cooking like Israeli food. I didn't think that. I went to culinary school in Florida after I decided I wanted to like, be a chef or at least continue down this path. Yeah. My family was like very excited that I had like chosen, that I wasn't like in jail, basically. <laughs> and that I actually found something that I Yeah, it's, it's kind of, you know, going past the disappointment that you're going to be a chef to just like, Okay. He's doing, well, like, he's doing something, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and then I had this advantage because I had fucked up and I had like actually found something that I loved. So a lot of kids that go to university, a lot of kids that even that go culinary school especially, it's sort of like people that can't like figure it out. And they're yeah. like, well, I'll, I like television chefs. I want to be a like yeah. celebrity. I'll go do that. Or I'll, you know, and which we know is like, not at all the case, but um, so I loved what it was that I was doing, and I really appreciated all the guidance and the mentorship from all the chef instructors, and I think they appreciated having somebody that was like serious about what it was doing, and I worked full-time while I went to school. I paid for school while I was 
in that and it was like kind of a good glimpse into what my life would actually be like as a chef working full-time going to school full-time and not sleeping very much you know um, and then but I wanted to cook European or whatever and I moved to Philly because it was on the way to New York um, and I stopped here for like a weekend with the girl that I moved here with and she uh, had a brother that um, lived outside of uh, Philly so we stayed here and I was like why would we go to New York there are excellent restaurants here and the cost of living is like at least a third and if you go to New York you know what your life is going to be like yeah. as a chef you're going to live in the Bronx with like seven other people you're going to work at like Le Cirque at that time Le Cirque or Danielle and make $12 an hour and I just don't why do that it's like what everybody else does so I worked for some very talented chefs here I worked at a restaurant called um, Straight Bass which was kind of like the Le Bernardin of um yeah. of Philly and so like I, classic French fr very very like tons of rules yeah. very intense um, and then I got a job working at a restaurant called Vetri which is the opposite of that it was like super Italian 30 seat restaurant you'd come in and the owner Mark Vetri would like make you a cappuccino you would like discuss the menu you know which was very different. different well the French kitchen is like there's no talking there's yeah. no opinion there's no uh you know, the refinement I really loved because I like that exact, you know, the obsessive quality that we all have, which is like, it's got to be perfect, knowing full well that perfect doesn't fucking exist yeah. in what it is that we do, but always, but being disappointed when it doesn't happen like that. You know, striped bass was like reduction sauces, clarification of consomme with rafts, brunoine parsley that cost fucking 60 cents a pound, and um, chiffonati mint in the walk-in, to going to vetri that was like, polenta cooked with water salt and olive oil goat rosemary yeah. or yeah. or the piedmonte pasta sauces as well it's like pasta water butter olive oil parmesan cheese that's it you know yeah. and there was something that i realized was that the simple and the restraint and this is very obvious now but at that time to be a fancy chef you had mm -hmm. to make shit as complicated yeah. as yeah. possible and you had to put on the twills Twills, a little... And dots of sauce, the whole... You know. you know, and French Laundry Cookbook just came out, too. So it was yeah. like, you could not go 10 feet in the city without going to a kitchen that had 10 pounds of Bermonté <laughs> yeah. and fucking, like, lobster tentacles. That was the way that everyone kind of cooked. And then I meet Mark, who's like, that's got, like, three too many ingredients. And you're like, what? You know, and that, that emotional response, the visceral reaction that people had to his food was beyond anything I'd ever seen. And it was like, wow, so powerful. And it told the story of where he was. And it was really cool. And even though I'm like a little bit too type A to be comfortable totally cooking Italian food, yeah. I loved I loved the nonchalance of it. I loved how comfortable people felt when they came in. And I was like, that kind of reminded me, you know, when people, even to this day, when you go back home and they're like, come over for coffee. And you're yeah. like, dude, I know what this means. This <laughs> means fucking babka. This means like three meals, yeah. take a nap, lay in my bed, <laughs> yeah. have one of my children. Like it, it yeah. it's, any, it's, it's that. Three days later. Yeah. Three days later. <laughs> and it's kind of a trap, but it's also indicative of the reason I think that we do what it is that we do, which is to make people feel comfortable and to not alienate. So... It was a really interesting sort of juxtaposition, having this like intensity, but also realizing that all 
that it was those were important lessons that I learned, but that wasn't the root of why I did what I did. And then, you know, my little brother David um, was in the military in Israel and was killed uh, in action. And then after that, I was like not interested, and I didn't, you know. And it, it took probably five years to really understand what yeah, had happened. Yeah. But I wasn't like going to go to Italy after that. I wasn't going to go to France. I wasn't going to, you know. There was a talk of me. I was going to go maybe go to Arzac and Saint Sebastian and work for two years. And I was like, it's not really what I want to do. And then I got a job. I met my business partner, my current business partner, Steve who owned a little restaurant in West Philadelphia called Marigold Kitchen. His wife, fiance at the time, Shira, and I grew up together in Squirrel Hill. And my mom was like her teacher or her mentor in a Solomon chapter like Jewish day school. So Jewish so geography. Circle, yeah. I, I'm yeah. Getting... And so I, Steve and I knew each other. We did like zero due diligence. We had a cup of coffee. He's the son of a rabbi. And I heard about Steve because he was like the other Jewish line cook in Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like to be quite a big yeah. Jewish community well, here. For us walking around, it seems like there's quite a lot of people. Maybe not on the Maybe not on the That's true. Are. They're all doctors and lawyers. Exactly. <laughs> and so Steve was a finance uh, investment banker in New York that um, you know, made the poor, the poor financial investment of uh, starting a restaurant. And then he hired me to be the chef. You know, we were cooking... I guess kind of like new American, but all the chawaj, like all, I was like braising monkfish tails with like Yemenite soup spice yeah. and doing like celery root and fenugreek dumplings with it to be like chilbe, yeah. you know, like, it, and it wasn't purpose. It was just kind of like nobody else was really doing it. And yeah. it was, it spoke to me and it, and then, you know, I'd go back to Israel and like sit down at a restaurant and like 30 salads would end up on the table and like Iraqi pita, like lafa would come yeah. from a taboon down the street and there would be like merguez bulgarian kebabs uh chicken livers like romanian style and greek style like plant ottoman well turkish is everything now right even it was weird even like a little of the sort of political issues somehow get diffused a little bit with food like in We, what we call, you know, cucumber tomato salad here is what, yeah. like Israeli salad in the yeah. States, but like Jews in Israel call it Arab salad. Yeah. yeah. And nobody has a fucking problem with yeah. it. I love that. Like, it was like not really dancing around like conflict either. You know, you could almost find that in the food. But it's, it's kind of really the only area. Exactly. That is completely, you know, doors open, everything goes. Well, well, because, because Jews is, in Israel don't give a shit and they're happy to call it whatever it is. And there's Palestinian restaurants that are open specifically for Jews that like can't find a place to eat on Shabbat. Uh, yeah. And that's the understanding. That But the have. understanding is, in Israel at least, that all the food is pretty much kind of Middle Eastern food that Israel started to cook and to eat. And that's fine. Like that's said openly somehow when, when it gets... Well, I suppose... I don't know. It's a hard one. But because... I suppose because quite a few of us ended up opening restaurants then it's got this weird tag of Israeli food which we never would call I but with Zahav I said let's just open an Israeli restaurant and I want the kind of dining that you get over there yeah and the big question is well a few of them what is Israeli is it like falafel and shawarma and I was like no even though that arguably would have made a lot more money than what <laughs> we did or isn't that like too political You know, and I was like, well, I don't know. I have a passport from it. I'm like, that's where I'm from. And why should that be 
an issue, especially in the United States. I yeah. mean, talk about cultural appropriation, like Jesus Christ. <laughs> Without argument, it's here, everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Well, what uh, the right? Like, where does it? What's the statute of limitation on cultural or land appropriation? When yeah. does it become okay? You know, and that's like how many years? How many generations? Well, we yeah. have. Like, I understand why it's a discussion, and I understand that if I were Palestinian, it would really fucking piss me off to see an Israeli restaurant getting props for hummus. But the other hand, like, I don't, I, because of my passport, I'm not really allowed to go to that many places in the Middle East. The only hummus that I've had has been from Israel, um, and it, nobody really has a problem with it there, yeah. you know? Again, I come from the U.S., where, like, California and Texas were fucking Mexico a hundred years before yeah. Israeli independence, and I'm like, yeah. and we eat tacos like it's no problem whatsoever. However, one of my best friends is Palestinian. It, that is not an argument enough for her to be like, like when she's like at a checkpoint, for example, yeah. my argument doesn't mean a fucking thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry to, sorry to like discuss politics if you guys don't want to. No, no, yeah, I, no, think, no, I no, think it's quite, a, like it's a very important thing to discuss because I think we try and highlight cuisine that is supposed to bring us together. And when the conversation goes to it tearing us apart or putting kind of borders and where does anything come from, everything is... Like you say, meatballs, Italian meatballs being eaten in America. Or, oh, my God. Well, what's know, American? I, listen, I've worked at plenty of new American restaurants before. Not one of them have ever been open, or owned by a Native American. Yeah. Right? Not yeah. one. Not one. And I'm like, so where, where, does the, where does the line get drawn? And as you said, and we have to be careful with this, too, because it's not like we're going to fucking make, like, challah and, like, there won't be any more fighting in the Middle East or, like, whatever. <laughs> no. Right? And the cliche, especially coming from the West, like, I'm going to go in and I'm going to make some challah and I've, like, I've got this whole thing figured out. Like, that's not going to happen. No. On the other hand, diplomacy as we know it is fucking backwards. And not, you know, like, the, <laughs> the other ways, the traditional avenues aren't working either. Yeah. So, as you said, this is, the, this is the arena where people seem to agree. If the food is good, nobody has a problem with it. Yeah. Food also... The anthropological aspects of cuisine don't lie. Everybody knows where this shit comes from. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, 
This is the pineapple mango flavor my fave. You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. What do you cook at home? If you cook, do you cook a stir fry? Like a quick kind I of... I cook like bolognese. Yeah. <laughs> but, but this is the thing. Everyone cooks the same kind of things. You either make like a quick stir fry, you make a quick bolognese sauce. You know, sometimes if you're adventurous, you make sushi. None, none of us were born to... Well, and everybody in the Middle East makes schnitzel for their kids. Yeah, but I, I just want to go back to find the moment that the Israeli and the Middle Eastern kind of trickling into your food. Was there a moment that you said, this is, I want to take it a step further? Or did it happen gradually? No, I mean, it was being a chef de cuisine and creating my own menu and then making food that had confit chicken with like wrapped in pastry with like orange blossom and almonds and people seeming to love that or making borekas and like that was exciting because people had recognized that there was something different and that my background had something to do with that and it wasn't me saying I'm going to make Israeli food and modernize it but people had called it out and then saying one day I think it was getting back it was coming back from a trip and saying why are we sous vide why are we deconstructing? Why are we like hiding behind this when like what we actually want to eat is the shulchan with all the salads. We want to like dig into different plates. We want to eat vegetables, like tons and tons of goddamn vegetables and put more salt and lemon on everything and drown everything in olive oil and rip bread and roll up sleeves and talk with our mouth full and then eat everything a la ash. Yeah. While we have <laughs> all this... I'm, just oh, I'm sorry, yeah, we want to skewer everything, <laughs> we want to put everything on sticks, on yeah. shipudim, and cook it out of ash on the fire, and I want to, like, not, I don't want rules, I want to just do that, because that, to me, was the way that I wanted to eat. Yeah. Well, are we going to be popular, are we going to be famous chefs, we did all this training, how do you let go of all this refinement, but, but and this came many years later, especially what's happening now, uh, not only in the States, but around the world, like, nobody, all these rules... Are kind of out the door. If you think about the moments that have like shaped your life, not just with where you are in your careers, but like, I don't know, like food has such a big part of it. And 10 out of 10 times, it's never been like at a Michelin. It's not like course course 12 out of 20 at a place in Paris that made me like remember my fucking grandmother or anything like that. So it, you think about the service that you give at your restaurant and uh, it could be a five minute interaction it could be a ten dollar exchange but you have the impact to really change somebody's day um, or evoke something from like childhood and that's what it is that we're going for I just don't believe that you need a, a lot of rules a lot of refinement to do that you know what are the experiences that you've had in childhood specifically related I guess to our home to Israel that have sort of affected the way if there's the one iconic dish Mm-hmm. The, whether it's like a grandmother or whether it's like a I don't know a road's like a schnitzel on rice in a gas station what is it? Yeah. For, for me it's not like completely not my home food because my parents are English so yeah. I grew up a bit like you grew up in kind of a maybe kind of Jewishy thing here in the US I grew up in a very English enclave in Israel where? So in near Haifa in like a small kind of place but all my parents parents were English so like I grew up in a very English community we had like chicken pies and boiled vegetables and stuff like that and <laughs> For me, that is very exotic. Very yeah. exotic for Israel, yeah. like the hummus places where you go to an Arab restaurant yeah. and you just like sit with a warm pita and a hummus that's just like that's what 
you want to eat. And, you know, there's this restaurant in England, they would do like a chicken that's like, you know, a spatchcock chicken and a lemon and sumac. Mm, kind of covered with sumac, nothing better. And all, I would like rip at that, eat it with hummus and pita, and I'm like the happiest. Yeah. But it's, that was also a family experience for us because the food we had at home, even though my mom's an excellent cook, was delicious, but it was very British. So this going out to the Arab restaurants up in the Galilee and stuff like that, these were the food experiences that kind of led to what we cook today, for me anyway. Yeah, I, w- I was actually, I, I'm from Yemeni family. We had, you know, my, my grandmother's breakfast on like Shabbat, that was a, like the thing, the, 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 the Jachman, yeah. the Kubani, Kubani thing. Yeah. Jachman, we didn't... Kubani was your family, yeah, more Kubani was the, the favorite Kubani. thing. Was yeah. <laughs> and I thought about it yesterday when we were at Kfal, and we had the Kubani toast, which was so delicious. It was so, yeah. so good. Yeah, it would have been a lot more neurotic had I known that you were young. It's better, <laughs> <laughs> better it than you so, <laughs> It's so delicious, truly. It was just fantastic. I actually, the first time I tasted Kubani was at your grandfather's uh, funeral, funeral yeah. a week afterwards. But like, yeah. I hadn't had Kubani and dipping it in the fenugreek dip like Khilbe. And I didn't understand yeah. this at all. It was like my first encounter with yeah. proper Yemeni Which we never, never did with Khilbe. We just had with like thick wedges of butter. We know how our food has had to kind of slightly adjust for the UK market. Yeah. What do you think were the adjustments that you had to make for American market? Because it doesn't all translate one-on-one, does it? So it's interesting. When we first opened, um, I was basically just copy-pasting what I thought were dishes from Israel that I thought were really good here. But it didn't work, A, because the context is totally different. You know, And even though, like, I think my structure could is very good. I'm not like whatever doctor should you go, you know. I'm not a doctor. And I also we don't have a restaurant in Jaffa overlooking like the Mediterranean Sea and my customers don't give a fuck about that either. And when it's like seven degrees Fahrenheit outside, I'm not gonna serve chopped salad. Like it doesn't yeah. make sense, even if I import the tomatoes from Israel. So there was a point where we almost actually closed the restaurant. Uh, our first year it was really? in 2008 really? yeah it was the worst so we opened well it's a financial downturn it was we, we opened May 5th 2008 uh, I went into drug rehab July of 2008 and then the economy tanked in October oh my god and um, we were like ugh, I had to call my uh, my dad in Israel and ask him to borrow $10,000 so we could make payroll uh, and this was past the point of us even taking paychecks and we were working for free, which, as you know, is very customary in the restaurant industry. (laughs) Um, But I literally called my dad and I had like 60 days clean sober and I was like, Abba, you know, we need to like borrow $10,000 because we like have to pay our employees. And I remember he was like, okay, you know, I've never asked my parents for like money or whatever. And it was to do it while you're like navigating early recovery. It wasn't awesome while we're like having to like let everybody go so we can like keep the lights on you know and then I remember him calling my business I was standing outside with Steve my partner and Steve gets a call and it's my dad calling from Israel to make sure that I'm not like gonna go use that time yeah. to like kill myself basically so it was an awful awful feeling and there was this point where um I remember I was making, actually, it was a Balkan mackerel dish, you know, and it was, like, very traditional. It was, like, salted mackerel with raw scallions, uh, Bulgarian feta, and olives. Mm. And uh, Steve was like, 
that is something that you would have in Israel. I don't think our customers get that, dude. And you are not, basically, you're not this like grandmother. You don't have this dynastic sort of relationship to a singular cuisine. Like, start creating, you know? And I was like, he's right. It wasn't stimulating for me to just make something that I thought was like popular in Israel. So I remember with that dish, actually, we took the mackerel and I seared it. And then I did like a, almost like a sofrito um, and made escabash, but used chawash. Uh, uh, like I used mm-hmm. like shamarak, uh, like a Yemenite soup spice with turmeric, cumin, black pepper. And I sweated down the onions and a lot of garlic and carrots. And then I added a lot of uh, vinegar and white wine and cooked that down and added the chawash and added a little fish fumet, brought it to a boil, dumped it on top of the mackerel that I seared, served it with lentils caramelized onions and cumin, which is like very Lebanese, yeah. right? <laughs> um, and then melafafoni um, and just salted cucumbers uh, with sumac. And I was like, and everybody loved it. Yeah. And it, you know, it was four different cuisines that were part of like the Israeli sort of terroir, like the food, you know? Two weeks later, so we did that to the whole menu. And I got to be creative and I got to tell the story a little bit of Israel. 10 years ago or 11 years ago, if you were to ask an Israeli, in the street of Tel Aviv, where the best Israeli restaurant is, there's no actual answer to that. No. There's Libyan, there's Palestinian, there's Moroccan, there's fucking no. Bulgarian, there's all these things. Um, so it was a very difficult thing to sort of understand. And we have this luxury, as, as do you, of being almost a third person. Yeah. And not being stuck in tradition mm-hmm. and saying, well, well, you guys did butter on the, <laughs> on the Kavana, which is very fancy, yeah. I think, for most Yemenite families. But so, like, you have the luxury of saying, well, like, maybe. We're not going to do russet. Like it's, it, we're not going to do grated tomato in the winter. There's another winter fruit. Like we can pickle persimmons. We can X, Y, and Z, yeah. and take all these experiences and put them and, and, and wrap them up into like the the uh, philosophy of what Israeli cuisine is. So we actually found it. There was a moment where like almost going under was kind of free because yeah. it didn't fucking matter what we did. We were going to close anyways. And then also this idea that you didn't have to be stuck in tradition. That you could pick and choose the hundred or so gastronomies that make up whatever Israeli cuisine is and put it together on one plate to tell a story, you know? It's a very good palette. Yes. So we never ended up actually cashing that check. My dad's $10,000 check sat in our desk. Two weeks later, Philadelphia Magazine came in and said we were like number one restaurant in (laughs) Philly and everybody came in and... From, I, I was going to ask you if you had like curse of the of the second place because this is one of the kind of the biggest uh, yeah. conversations we have with chefs and other people that opening the second place can be the biggest curse for a business but maybe yours was in the first one and then you <laughs> the well, second was easy concepts but we've got five federal donuts and we've got two decent enough and three goldie Ibn Fisher, Kvar, Zahav, and every one of them has got their own challenges. And, yeah. you know, like, yeah, second restaurants are really difficult, and they're always, especially if the first restaurant is a success, but we've closed restaurants before. I mean, um, it's not, none of it's easy. I think the hardest thing is to do is to make sure that you're always focused on the first restaurant reinventing. You know, yeah. I mean, Zahav is 11 years old, which might as well be 100. Yeah, yeah. for a restaurant. For, yeah. 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 So every day, you have to make a conscious decision to be better than you were the day before. Because if you're not, you're worse. Yeah. Yeah. If 
like honey and goes down, it all goes. You know, it's yeah, like you it's have a, you to know. be. Yeah. You have to be on top of your game, and you have to really be committed to reinventing and to reinvesting, not just monetary, but like your effort. You know. Yeah. No, your attention has to go to to the first place as much as to the latest place. Everything. It's all a linear kind of continuation of one thing. Just to think about uh, Kfar, uh, where we had beautiful, really beautiful lunch yesterday. Thank you. And the the menu to me, you know, seems like yes, contemporary and fresh, and you want to eat it, but also suffused with a kind of a line of nostalgia. Thank you. And so we much. we had we had the bagel, so nice. the toasted bagel, with you know, like you said, the not the yellow cheese but you know with the melted cheese and egg no but for us just that like toasted sesame thing where the, because you toast the bread with the sesame yeah. they almost over toast but it's so delicious it's like the, the flavor of childhood kind of thing yeah but is this for you is this uh, so in, in that sense I think you know for me it really echoed with me I really enjoyed that I think maybe most of the most of your customers wouldn't have that note of nostalgia or wouldn't get it because they right. don't have they don't have those context, but is this something that's important to you or yes, something that you seek out personally? Well, I think that first of all, thank you so much because of that element that you you need the deliciousness for the customers mm-hmm. that really just want to have good food, yeah, and you need the people that understand this to get because otherwise we're like every other cool Middle East yeah. Israeli restaurant where people like they go to Israel for like a week and they're like we're gonna put. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Put and like whatever, and, and that is that's okay too. But I want that. I want that emotional reaction that you have. I want my um, like my Persian half brother in law to come and be like, I've never tasted all these things this way, but this takes me back to whatever. So the, yes, of the utmost importance. But you know that egg sandwich, for example, is like American egg bagel sandwich, yeah. but. With the Jerusalem bagel, yeah. um, with kashkabal cheese and the scoop. Yeah. You know? yeah. So it's like Balkan, Yemeni, and then everything in Israeli one, like, streets, yeah. Palestinian yeah. bagels. Like I want all those things. So and it then, has to be and it completely presses the button. Completely, yeah. uh, like like with, like when you said the coffee tree in, in Weizmann. It's exactly that. Oh, yeah. God. I, I love Thank that. You so much. I, I, like I really love that. No, it's really good, and it's a, for, it's the same with the rogala. It's you know the rogala for. Because we kind of do a bastardized version in the UK that's maybe not the kind of traditional Israeli one where you laminate the, you you know, syrupy and laminate the dough and stuff. And we ate, we took three yesterday, one each, and uh, it's like the flavor of home. So that's really lovely to to bring that. And actually what was really nice as well, there was like another maybe four tables of Israelis around us sitting there, which was quite funny. I thought Israelis that are sitting around you that are happy. Then that's quite a good thing, isn't it? (laughs) Like it's unheard of. You know what we what we really sort of like when I have a table of Israelis because we do the the meze thing and we have like for two you look at like lemon dish like this and all our British customers are like oh no it's too much too much food too much food and then I think you know with the Israeli customers that I give them like half a pita per person they're pissed off. I they just don't understand it because yeah. why we're, why we're is the food portion yeah. like why is there even an amount you know yeah. they just don't get it. and like there's no metric for like what you would but my family that. laugh at us because we'll serve like four falafel balls is like a little kind of yeah meza starter and they're like what is four falafel balls yeah. like that doesn't yeah that's like half a ball this is like nothing yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a child half yeah. of a lunch 
can you tell us about your concepts, about the different ones, and explain the names and what they are, so okay. people know? Yeah, so Zahav is, uh, I mean, people call it modern Israeli. I don't think we've actually called it that. I mean, I think the idea of like Israeli food being cooked globally might be more accurate. Yes. Um, so that's where I'm like the chef still. And then Abe Fisher, which is more, it's like Jewish, but more like North American and, and European. And then there is Kvar, which is like a bakery cafe, but not like an actual bakery. You know, it's sort of like a restaurant in disguise, yeah. kind of. Um, and then we've got Dizengoff, which is a hummusia. We just make hummus and pita and a couple different salads. And then Goldie, which is a falafel yao, which is just a falafel shop. It happens to be vegan, too, and we make like trina milkshakes. Mm. Did oh, you have those or no? no? No. Oh, they're so good. Are they good? Yeah, yeah it's an excellent idea. Trina. Oh, amazing. Very good. And then um, it's also like... What is probably the most important is that it's we make the sandwiches. It's not like we hand you a sandwich to then destroy to stuff a bunch of shit inside of, yeah. you know? Um, which I find like are my favorite places in Israel. Um, and then Federal Donuts, which is donuts and fried chicken and coffee. Yeah. Is that it? Oh. That might be it. We're opening a place called Merkaz, which will be like a pita sandwich, like schnitzel. And oh, Sabine. nice. And then we're going to open a place called Laser Wolf. Wow, you don't, you don't do things by halves, do you? This no, is no, like... Then, yeah, that's going to be Shipudia, like a, just a kebab oh, wow. house. And Laser Wolf was the name of the butcher in Fiddler on the Roof. Oh. Oh, yeah. Nice. So we're looking for a fiddler to play on the roof. Just looking yeah. for someone, yeah? yeah. <laughs> Someone's sure, looking for... So uh, listen, come back. Please, come back to Philly. We, will, uh, we hope you come to London, you know, well, at some you know, stage. I've never really been I've been to London for 48 hours I've never oh you have to come at some stage so much fun I know it is so much fun can we do a little swap yeah you guys will come here and we'll I'm not not taking on these like what is this (laughs) (laughs) no 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 no. No, 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 no. not a live swap but like it would be so nice maybe if we did a week a week of Honey and Co here and then we like flipped and did like Zahav there or something that would be sick right awesome All right. well thank you guys so much thank you so much for chatting to us Thanks so much for listening to our latest episode. If you'd like to join one of the next talks, please follow us on social media at Honey and Co or go on our website, honeyandco.co.uk. With a huge thanks to Hester Kant for producing. A special thanks to our own Louisa Cornford for her wonderful research. And the music is by the lovely Alice Russell. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango 
lemon and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.